0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon. I think it's safe to
1: say, Wade, that this week's episode will be celebrating the technological achievements of humankind.
0: Yes, we'll be shooting for the stars, shooting for the moon... And hopefully there we'll find Mufasa.
1: He is looking down on us after all. Disney has demonstrated an uncanny ability to create lions completely out of ones and zeros. We're going to be reviewing their so-called live-action remake of The Lion King on this week's show.
0: Then we'll show how NASA took those same ones and zeros to put a man on the moon. We're going to be looking at Todd Douglas Miller's new documentary, Apollo 11. No
1: CGI involved there. Both of those films are coming up on episode 210 of Seeing and Believing.
0: This gorge is where all lions come to find their roar. All lions? Even my dad? Even Mufasa came here when he was your age. Refused to leave until his roar could be heard above the rim. All the way up there? That's when you know you found it. With a little practice, you'll never be called a cub again. Watch this. You'll get it, Simba. Just takes time. I'll check on you later. Dad will be so proud, won't he? It's a gift he'll never forget. We are here, episode 210, and I guess you could say this is the nostalgia episode, though I feel like. Kevin, most of the films that we've talked about this summer have to do with nostalgia or invoke nostalgia. The 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 just occurred. It was pretty big. It was pretty big for us in Houston, and we're going to be talking about Apollo 11. We missed the documentary when it hit theaters, Kevin, but we're, we're doing our best to make up for it because we can't let this go. We can't let this go without talking about it, especially after the 50th anniversary.
1: Oh yeah, especially. And I can only imagine what kinds of celebrations and revelry happens down there in your neck of the woods in Houston. Is the whole NASA thing is that kind of like a almost like a sports team like you have a little <laughs> mascot and a parade maybe every time that a milestone passes?
0: Well, okay. I'll I'll say this. Look at the names of our sports teams. The Houston Astros. The Houston Rockets. So I think that says everything there is to say about the (laughs) city of Houston. Like just Space Center, and it's yeah, it's it's been this it's been this really big deal. But we are going to begin this episode, like so many others over the past year have, and that's with a review of a Disney live action remake. It's been I don't know a month and a half. So let's go ahead and jump right in now. Live action is somewhat of a misnomer in this case. You see, in John Favreau's The Lion King, a retooling of Roger Allers and Rob Mickoff's 1994 animated classic, CGI is a far more appropriate term. No animals were harmed in the making of this movie. In fact, no animals were used at all in the making of this movie. Now, I'm joking a bit, uh, but The Lion King, which features the voice talents of James Earl Jones, Seth Rogen, Beyoncé, and Donald Glover, does provide a provoking window by which to talk about technology, Hollywood's approach to creativity, and the nature of what I mentioned earlier—nostalgia. We'll get into those ideas later, but for now, Kevin, I'd like to ask you what you think of the 1994 film. So, the plots for both of these movies are essentially the same. After the murder of his father, a young lion prince flees his kingdom only to learn the true meaning of responsibility and bravery. So, my question to you is this. Did this story work well for you the first time around in 1994? Or, are you coming into Favreau's project feeling like the narrative is already not really feeling the love tonight i had to do it i'm sorry i had to do it (laughs) yeah you did not have to do it but i'm glad you did it anyway um
1: so with regard to the 1994 original i liked it okay the the thing about the story is that it's very compelling when it's good and it's very cheesy when it's bad. It's it's an uneven film. There are parts of it that work like Gangbusters, that stampede scene, uh, and the subsequent you know death scene of Mufasa is just. It's always really affecting. It's really well done. But for every one of those sequences, you kind of get the you know maybe the Timon and Pumbaa business. I think can you feel the love tonight is. A big hunk of cheese that really just (laughs) is not that great of a song and not that great of a sequence. There's a lot that I find kind of middling about the animated Lion King original. So going into this film, I was thinking about, or at least I was hoping for, um, a product that would take everything that was so compelling about the animated original and find a way to maybe maybe smooth out the rough patches, maybe cut out entire chunks that just weren't working, such as the aforementioned musical number. In other words, take what works and leave what doesn't. And I guess that was always going to be a fool's hope because this is pretty much a straight-up remake. Almost, there There are shots in this that are framed exactly the same as the animated original. They have the same lines of dialogue, the same jokes. Even like the, the the way that some of these lines are delivered are almost beat for beat from the animated original. So I found my hopes for a retooled Lion King that kept the good and jettisoned the not-so-good. I was a little bit disappointed in that, and there wasn't really anything to replace that. It was, it, it was a disappointing experience. It was a straight shot-for-shot shot remake that didn't even have the magic of the <laughs> shots from the original.
0: So, so essentially you were like, hey, I hope they take the good and eliminate the bad. And instead they took everything and then eliminated the good. Uh, is that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know there there are some parts of this film that I still think works, but I mean, for kind of the quick Cliff's Notes version of my review, yeah, that's probably pretty close. yeah,
0: no I I I maybe like the 1994 version a little bit more than you if i'm if I'm kind of getting at what you're saying, I think there are some sections that really work. I think the back half, it feels pretty rushed and that the first half really builds a lot and it creates these compelling characters and then we get the return of Simba and that just happens it happens quickly and i i think you know this film it it really suffers from some of those same problems you mentioned that this movie is almost a shot for shot remake that some of the the jokes are the same and I just it's just incredibly disappointed that this movie recycles so much and it can't even it can't even nail half of it the there are a couple of tweaks to the story which I, I think are are mostly good and those are maybe some of the bright points for this picture but it's just it just doesn't work And as I was trying to think through the reason why it feels like John Favreau is going for this, this documentary feel for the film. It's hyper-realistic. And yet, it's also cartoonish because we're getting essentially the same movie that was done with animation. And so there's this breakdown, I think, between that hyper-realism and the cartoonish songs and, and dances and characterizations. And part of the way that these individuals are designed, these hyper-realistic animals, they're limited in the way they emote their anthropomorphic characteristics. So when they dance and they sing and they talk, Favreau's visual approach, it, it almost like it naturally limits the way they express their emotions. And so everything feels sanded down here and as I'm watching this movie I'm thinking about Pixar's 2016 short Piper uh, this small bird-like creature on the beach as the waves are kind of going back and forth and they took sort of the same documentary approach but allow the camera to just kind of watch these animals like you would if you were in the wild filming them with your camera and I, I think where Lion King goes wrong is it just doesn't find the right groove to tell this story. And it's so stuck in the nostalgia and the, Hey, we have to keep this the same that by updating the technology, they really allow everything to kind of fall apart. So yeah, I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. There are other qualities to the film. I think we could get into, but it's just this disjointed, Uh, approach between the story and the technology and the way these characters are even just kind of conceived here on screen for us. It's interesting that you bring up
1: that uh, that Pixar short. That's not something that really occurred to me while I was watching this Lion King remake, but now that you mention it, and I'm thinking back to what made Piper work, I mean, there is a little bit of... There are some liberties, I think, that the animators for that short take in their... Uh, creation of of these these bird characters you know like the 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 little bird who's the the central character is you know there's still a little bit of fudging on the photorealism of it it doesn't look exactly like a real bird it just looks close enough that you're able to to buy in but even beyond that uh the shots that are in that that short that let us kind of put ourselves involves our involve ourselves in the simple little narrative are chosen with care to evoke a certain impression so when that little bird's getting bowled over by the waves and it makes friends with a little you know sand crab the the way that those feelings and that relationship if you can call it that are created are done with extreme care and um done with a dynamic quality that I don't really see in Favreau's remake. Favreau, like you said, he, in a lot of cases, seems to be content to recreate basically the same shot composition as in the original. So you think of, for example, the Stampede sequence, where uh, Scar and Mufasa are facing off, and Mufasa's like, hang on for dear life, and Scar, you know, says one last line and then kind of pushes him off the edge to his death that exchange is basically framed in a similar or even the same way as the animated original, but all of the drama in those in those shot choices and the compositions is lost because we don't have facial expressions on an animated lion. We only have photorealistic lions that are saying the words and are framed the same way, but there's... A missing ingredient there that and Favreau doesn't really adjust his blocking of that scene in a way that makes up for that deficit and this is a problem that really plagues the movie throughout so there's another uh, short scene where it's just after Scar has taken over Pride Rock he brings the hyenas in and the hyenas are sort of parading in front of the lionesses and they kind of stare each other down and we see kind of a, a shot from Nala's perspective. You know, the, the hyenas walking by and it looks like a hyena. It's kind of vaguely sinister. And then Favreau cuts back to basically a reaction shot of Nala, but she's just a lion. There's no expression on her face. So you can't really tell, well, is, is she intimidated by this? Is she angry? Is she seething? There's just no way to form an emotional picture of what's going through her head because of Disney's choice to make this as photorealistic as possible. And so there's not a whole lot of drama in that scene, even though your memory of the original and maybe some of the soundtrack choices are trying to nudge you in that direction.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe the best example of this is the character of Zazu so he's that you know the bird that assists uh, Mufasa and I think John Oliver does a fine job in voicing the character but it feels very lifeless. Well why? Because if you are animating a real bird or something that looks like a real bird, all they can really do is maybe kind of flap the wings a little bit and open and close their beak. And so, what we see is this photorealistic bird who's trying to act like this cartoon character, and that doesn't come across on screen. And so, maybe that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at here when I when I talk about his approach to the story. And I, I I'm thinking too about what this film says about technology, and also what this film says about myth, as we're thinking about these stories that we. Uh, we use to kind of make sense of the world, uh, to understand relationships, to understand life. That's certainly what the animated film is trying to do, to think about the circle of life and to think about relationships within that. And so what this film has essentially accomplished is it's taken that myth and reinvented it through this modern-day technology – and this technology is kind of how we see the world now. It's as if we're unable to look past uh, this uh, this story from a mythological stance, or look at this story uh, through the lens of of something that's. Not realistic, but it's conveying certain emotions, and instead we look at this myth through our modern technology, and it's basically kind of sanded down. So I'm thinking about some of these things because I think that's more of an interesting path as I'm watching the movie was like, oh, yeah, like as as a society, we're taking really everything – and we're pushing it through uh, this whole of modern day technology and kind of sanding down everything that we know about the world. And instead of it coming out better and livelier or kind of working, uh, it comes out uh, <laughs> not as lively and not as impactful as everything else. So those are just kind of ideas that are going on in my mind as I'm thinking through this. There are some changes, I think. The change, or maybe maybe it's not even too much of a change, but some of the some of the tweaks that talk about our world and taking care of the environment, being a steward. So you have Mufasa's talking about uh, protecting the hunting grounds and limiting how much hunting is going on, and then we actually get to see Scar allow the hyenas to really do whatever they want. And that impacts their environment. We don't get to really see that in the animated picture. And I think that's pretty interesting. The idea of saying, hey, there is life and death in this world, uh, but we're to steward that and we're, we're to take care of that and to control that. But I, I, I don't think the film really wanted to dig into it uh, as much as maybe I wanted the film to dig into it because it's so chained to the original and recreating it that it didn't allow itself to to work in these new avenues
1: i think that's exactly right there is a couple of there are a couple of places in this film where it seems like it's interested in digging a little bit deeper into things such as the nature of power you know what is what is just power what is what is what is uh, just monarchy look like versus an unjust monarchy like what what are the responsibilities of the powerful towards the less powerful that's something that this film at, at least to my memory when comparing it to the original it seems like this this remake gets a little bit more into detail with that with talking about. Uh, when, when Mufasa has that conversation with the young Simba, and telling him, you know, a, a true king doesn't look for what he can take; a true king looks for what he can give. The what you already mentioned about how the film spends a little bit more time showing the broader effects of Scar and the hyenas' predations—that's that's all interesting enough, and it could have made for the foundation. ...of a much more interesting movie than what we got. It's kind of the same problem that we had with, uh, for example, Aladdin... ...where there's some germs of interesting ideas present... ...but it's Disney knows that if they don't have a friend like me in Aladdin... ...or if they don't have Can You Feel the Love Tonight in The Lion King... ...there's going to be some fans who are going to complain. So they put those in there, regardless of whether or not they fit this new product or if they seem to uh, mesh well with some of the innovations and new elements that they do decide to put in. I want to go back to that uh, comment you made earlier, though, about the the relationship of technology to myth, because I, I do think that this film in... Being so tied to the original, but being so unwilling to take liberties with it, kind of the lack of imagination is obviously present just in fact that this is a remake, a slavish remake at that of the original, but also in the way that it reimagines some of those original sequences. So you think about that scene that kicks off the film's final act, Simba has the vision of Mufasa kind of telling him, you are my son. I'm proud of you. You need to go and reclaim the throne that you were born to. In the original, you know, there's, it's very, in some ways it's very literalistic, right? Like he literally sees Mufasa in the clouds and it's, it's sort of like a, almost like a Monty Python thing, right? Where you literally see God <laughs> up in the clouds. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it does work, though the the way that it's it's animated, it's very on the nose. But there's also a sense of of power and transcendence to to that that makes it feel emotionally true, in a way that the re-ima- Favreau's reimagining of it in this new film isn't really. And this one. Simba's, you know, standing at the edge of a pool and he looks up and he sees a thunderhead and Favreau decides to sort of illuminate the thunderhead with little bolts of lightning that give it the suggestion of a Leonine face without literally having Mufasa like sitting up there in the clouds. And you kind of understand the impulse to do that because this is a more grounded Lion King. But the effect is that it doesn't really feel like it, it doesn't feel very emotionally powerful. Like Simba's just essentially looking at a cloud that kind of reminds him of his dad and he hears a voice and then he he goes but in the original you think about the you know the clouds and the celestial light and sim the expression on Simba's face it had, it gives his decision a lot more weight whereas In this one, he kind of looks at a cloud for a little while, has a short conversation, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go and retake my throne now. And it all just feels very abrupt. And I think that that's maybe an artifact of this film feeling like it has to hit the beats, even if those beats don't fit with the new song it's singing.
0: Yeah, and, and James Earl Jones, I, I was thinking through his character, and in that that particular scene, it doesn't have the power that the animated film does. And I think a a good portion of that is kind of how you mentioned the framing of that scene, the way that it plays out. And I do wonder, perhaps James Earl Jones, you know, maybe his voice isn't as powerful as it once was. And 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 maybe that's just an example of the movie being so tied to the original that it suffers because it can't live up. It physically can't live up to what happened in 1994. Going along kind of with this uh, this change or this maybe modern day look at the film, a grounded look, I think the character that suffers the most, and it's almost a travesty, but Rafiki, his character is stripped of everything that makes him interesting. He's kind of this Yoda type character in the animated movie, and He's not that here. And he's also stripped of all, most of his mysticism and his spirituality. And so what does he become? He becomes this character that kind of watches from afar and makes predictions, and and that's about it. There doesn't seem to be any sort of destiny involved, and... You know, if we're thinking of this as, as almost a Hamlet remake, right? The story of the, the Lion King. There's there's definitely right a spiritual dimension to that. There is this feeling of destiny, of maybe even predestination, of these spiritual roles that are placed on these guardians of society. And with Rafiki, uh, this this grounded look at him, it really strips the film of that. And then once again, like we're like we're you know continuing to talk about, uh, it strips the movie of its emotional core. There are a couple of shots too that that I do like, uh, Kevin. Uh, there's one uh, couple actually of Simba as he's kind of walking through the desert, uh, and 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 that's just that's just kind of watching him. And I, I think the film could kind of work by just observing these animals and, instead of this cartoonish feel that it wants to go for because of that hyperrealism. And then there's a shot too at the end where. We get the puddle, and in the puddle we see a reflection of Pride Rock, and it's upside down, and there's this mouse that comes, and then we kind of cut up, and it's this nice look at how the return of Simba reverses the effects of literally the scar, and I think maybe more of those type angles and shots could have restored this movie or at least helped this film out, but I don't see enough of that to really warrant anything special, and... and the CGI, there's, there's really good work done in it, right? These people are very talented, and this is a massive undertaking. And, I, you know, John Favreau, he put something, he put it together, and it's at least watchable. So I do have to give him that. Um, but yeah, like we're saying over and over again, it's just ultimately <laughs> disappointing. I, you know, I do have to give
1: Favreau and his small army of animators credit for that, that they do produce an impressive looking thing. Uh, it does, it it feels to me watching this film almost felt to me almost like a, a tech demo or a proof of concept or something like something you might see at a, at an Apple keynote address where, you know, Tim Cook strides out onto the stage (laughs) and is like, we use just computers to remake the Lion King. And then he like, you know, shows a scene from the Lion King that looks kind of like this and everyone ooze and ahs over the technical aspects of it. But they're not really there to get swept up in the story. The big draw is the technology. And I think that's a really sad thing for a Disney movie to be, to be less interested in telling a good story uh, that is emotionally affecting because of its craft and be more just focused on craft for its own sake I just think that that's it, it, it's a shame and in a lot of ways it's diametrically opposed to what the mission of Disney used to be at least ostensibly. I don't know. I mean, I've never been a, a huge um Disney fan in the sense that, you know, I go to Disneyland and I, you know, wear the mouse hat and I have a favorite Disney villain. But, you know, there is a lot to be said for that ethos that they they once embodied as being sort of this place where they would take something and they would apply all of this creativity to it to make it into something magical. And what we see in this remake of The Lion King is something that is neither original nor magical. In fact, it's almost purposely trying not to be magical by trying to resemble the real world <laughs> as much as possible.
0: Yeah, and... I mean, my favorite joke of uh, from the original film is when uh, Pumbaa, you know, they're talking about the stars and he, he says, I always thought there were balls of gas burning millions of miles away. I think that that line is so funny and it's a direct repeat here, but it's not all that funny. Uh, I think Timon and Pumbaa here are pretty good, uh, Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen. But,
1: uh, they're they're probably the only, yes.
0: maybe I would say, straight upgrade from <laughs> yeah. the original. I, I, I liked them quite a bit. And I think part of that is because they were allowed to do something a little bit different. And, and you know, could we compare them to the original cast? Yeah, but they're different. And so, it, you know, it, it works. And, yeah, obviously would like to see more of that. Listeners, that is our review of The Lion King from Disney+. I almost said animation studios. It's from Disney Walt Disney Pictures. We would love to hear your thoughts about the film. Make sure to tweet us at belief Pod at CBeliefPod. You can also email us your thoughts, seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. We're going to be reviewing Apollo 11 here in just a bit. Don't go anywhere. song is imagination by morton miller we appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to rate and review the show on itunes it's really fantastic it helps us get the word out on the podcast it's really easy just go to itunes search seeing and believing you can give us a star rating and type out a review we're also very thankful for all of the individuals who've taken an opportunity to support us on Patreon. We set up a Patreon campaign. You know, we've been doing this for four years, and it just it, it makes me uh, very thankful to see the people come alongside us and say, hey, we love uh, supporting this work, and we want to help you guys You know, keep going. You can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash underscore believing, underscore podcast. There are a number of levels of donation, and I think probably our unanimous favorite level of donation is the what can you buy for $5 level. And thinking about that, thinking about how we could maybe help out our viewers, Kevin, so I wanted to ask you, what could someone buy for $5? Uh, Well, for any listeners who are in a line of
1: work that requires a lot of negotiation. They say that it becomes more difficult for others to negotiate with you if they can't read your facial expression. So $5 would get you a head box. So you just get this box, you put it on your head so it covers up all of your facial expressions, and boom, you're like Darth Vader at the negotiating table.
0: It's a huge advantage. Uh, $5 seems actually like a huge bargain. Yeah, I think it's a huge bargain. And I've heard, too, that... The company producing these are actually – they're working on some license agreements so you can have it colored or painted to look like some of your favorite characters. So you could hypothetically look like Darth Vader when you're negotiating the down payment on that car.
1: <laughs> you could. I think that it would, it would probably lose some of its creepy – quality if you actually had features painted on the box. Mm -hmm. I think just like a plain cardboard box, you stick it on your head, walk in that door. Nobody's going to be able to
0: know what you're thinking. You could be thinking (laughs) anything under there. You could be thinking anything. That's $5. You can also take five bucks and you can support us on Patreon. Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast.
1: Yeah, and our Patreon isn't the only way that you can help us in our mission. Of course, Wade, you and I, we talk about movies and TV exclusively on Seeing and Believing, but we are part of the Christ and Pop Culture podcast, and Christ and Pop Culture cares about a lot more than just our little corner of the pop culture landscape. And $5 will also allow you to become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, which not only helps us publish great articles, keep this podcast and others like it afloat, but also gives us the ability to give you back a little bit something. If you're a member of Christ in Pop Culture, you get access to our members form, and you also get... Every now and then, free monthly member offering stuff that we just give you as a way of saying thank you for your $5 monthly membership. This month, Wade, the free monthly member offering is a book. It's written by Jeffrey F. Coos, and it's titled Live the Questions, How Searching Shapes Our Convictions and Commitments. Uh, staff writer Elizabeth Garn had uh, this to say about it in her write-up for the site. She says... Live the Questions is an invitation for us to sit with the deep questions of life, questions that have been asked since that first moment in the garden, questions that have reverberated throughout all of time and human history. In each chapter of the book, Coos examines a question asked by someone in scripture, starting with the most important question of all, asked by God himself, Where are you? He then guides his readers through the question and the thoughts behind it, encouraging us to take time to sit and think about what we are reading, to not just push forward for answers, but to live in the question as well. So it sounds like this book, which I haven't gotten around to yet, Wade, but I'm looking forward to digging a little bit deeper into it later. It looks like this book has a lot of thought-provoking questions to ask, maybe more interested in the questions than in the answers. That sounds pretty good to me.
0: Yeah, that sounds... Great. It's it's one of those books that I think, I think is good for our time, and especially as, you know, we're we're a couple decades outside of, or at least a decade or so outside of growing up in church. I know for for both of us, and something like that is I think it's really really welcome. Uh, for me. So I'm I'm excited about reading it.
1: Yeah, well, there you have it. Listeners, if you are not a patron, but you still feel like uh, supporting our podcast indirectly, becoming a member is a great way for you to do that. Go to ChristPopCulture.com. You'll see a link in the upper right corner. Click on that and there will be directions on how you can become a member and get some of those sweet, sweet member offerings all for yourself.
0: I'd like to know, what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip?
1: That's uh, relatively difficult to, to answer. Uh, it's a job that, that we collectively said that to, was possible and we could do. And, and of course, the, the nation itself is backing us. So we just sincerely hope that we measure up to that.
0: The whole Apollo program was designed to get two
1: Americans to the lunar surface and back again to Earth safely. The enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge. Apollo 11 has very simply been given the mission of carrying men to the moon, landing them there, and bringing them safely back. Okay, okay. I'll controllers. Go, no, no, go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. No. No. not know. No. do No. know. No. Go I I I I I I know. I Well, Wade, life is full of disappointments. The Lion King remake, sadly, seems to have been one of them, at least from the review that we just did on the first segment. But you know what's not a disappointment? Us landing on the moon.
0: (laughs) 50 years later, it's still, how did we do that? Yeah, (laughs) it's just crazy to me. I think that when we land on the moon again, I'll probably cry. I'll do it. I'm calling it now. (laughs)
1: I I think that your optimism in assuming that we will land on the moon again is super admirable. And I will let you hope for both of us,
0: Wade. Well, hey, Project Orion is aiming for Mars, and we gotta go to the moon first. So I'm I'm up for it. I'm believing. I'm gonna claim it and we'll see what happens. Well, well, don't stop believing
1: as the great philosopher. Once said, On this segment, we are going to be talking about the moon landing again, this time in a little bit of a different vein from when we most recently talked about it with our review of Damien Chazelle's film First Man. That film, of course, was a fictionalized retelling of Neil Armstrong's journey to become the first man to step on the moon. Apollo 11, the new documentary that just came out this year, is a documentary that tells the same story. The approach this time, though, is much different. Apollo 11 consists solely of archival footage, including 70 millimeter film previously unreleased to the public and does not feature narration, interviews, or modern recreations. The Saturn V rocket, Apollo crew consisting of Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, of course, and Michael Collins, and the Apollo program's Earth based support staff are all prominently featured, but we see them only through this archival footage, some of which has never been seen before and was only recently discovered in NASA's archives. The result is a journey to the moon that is, of course, familiar, as all of us know the story, but none of us literally have ever seen it like this, so Wade, this is like we talked about on the uh at the beginning of the episode. this is kind of like catnip for you in a lot of ways being a a Houston resident and being really interested in all things uh the space program. so you obviously know a lot about this period. you've obviously seen a lot of films about the space program. My question for you is, how does this documentary? perhaps change your perception of that historical period and how does this film measure up against all of its predecessors?
0: Yeah so I was thinking about just this segment and I've been I've been thinking about it for a couple of days because I watched this movie oh, a little over a month ago I think and then I and then I watched it again, the documentary and I'm I thinking I, I hope the listeners, and Kevin don't get irritated about how much I gush about this movie because it's really amazing I think it's I think it's a masterpiece I'll just say that I think it's a masterpiece you know I, I've seen like you mentioned uh, quite a few documentaries or series or miniseries and there are, there are a number of good ones out there 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 really are I I haven't seen anything like this and I I, I was trying to think through what, what makes this different. Of course, this is a unique take. As you mentioned, there's no narration. There's no talking head interviews. The footage, it's been digitally remastered. And as I was watching it for the first time, as I'm watching it with Priscilla, and she's, she's saying, hey, is, is this a new movie? Is this footage that they recreated? And I, I was like, no, this is, this is what was shot. And I, I think maybe it's just Miller's ability to sit in the moment. It's a, his ability to let this footage speak for itself. You know, we spend millions of dollars on on CGI for this movie or that movie. And with these images, we actually get to see space travel happening. And he's patient. He allows us to sit in these moments to get to know these characters to really kind of go on this journey with us. And you know Kevin, we know what's going to happen. This is Apollo 11. We all know how it's going to go. And it's still an incredibly tense film and you know it's it's just really kind of wonderful. So I've been waiting for a long time. I've been waiting for a long time to hear what you think about this movie. So <laughs> so tell me tell me what you think. You you know, I I don't
1: want to disappoint you, Wade, because I know you were looking forward to this, and I don't know if this is a result, maybe, of just knowing that you admired it so much, and having super high expectations, but I did... I I liked this film. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a masterpiece, though, Um, and that might be just a function of me going in expecting a masterpiece and just merely finding a good documentary. I think what I like about this film is... Something that I really liked about Damon Chazelle's first man is this portrait of space travel as sort of a nuts and bolts endeavor, right? Like the the shots that we get of the Saturn V rocket blasting off that's you know not enhanced by CGI wizardry at all, the uh chatter back and forth between the astronauts and Mission Control, where they, you know, they kind of slip little pleasantries into their conversation. It's not all coldly technical, but it's not written. It's all very off-the-cuff, obviously. And all of these things combine to create sort of a texture around the Apollo 11 mission that, you know, living in 2019 these days, and most, most of us, or at least you and I were born long after the the mission took place so for us looking back at this event there's this tendency to sort of wrap it in history you know this is a much mythologized historical event it's one that we are used to seeing kind of in our archival news footage uh if we if we've seen movies about it the movies use that archival footage and it's all very familiarly late 1960s. It's a little bit grainy. The The way that the camera footage is taken is is all recognizably, you know, not like top-end camera work, right? Seeing it digitally remastered like this kind of strips all of that patina of history away from it and lets us experience it as if we were Experiencing it contemporaneously And I think that that's really valuable And allows us to engage with the the History imaginatively In a way that we weren't able to before And for that I think this is a worthwhile documentary
0: I, You know I, what I really love To with, with Miller is that he finds a way to Highlight the different Emotions or ideas that are Associated with With humanity going to the moon And there are these contemplative shots in this picture these images that force us to consider the weight of this achievement to consider the smallness of who we are in the universe and we can kind of get into all of those shots there's oh there's this beautiful shot when armstrong and aldrin they're they're coming back they're going to dock off the moon uh, back to the command module and we get a shot from the command module and the what's left of the lunar module is this small speck and miller just watches as it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and there's this smallness there this finiteness there that you you know you, you associate with this entire ordeal and then at the same time miller finds a way to highlight as you mentioned the nuts and bolts of this, of this mission, and the individuals who put this together, he did this anatomy of a scene with New York Times, and he basically breaks down the the first part of the lunar descent, and he talks about his use of split screen. So there's split screen that's kind of used throughout the picture, and. They go through this go, no-go sequence, and so we're hearing it happen, and as the individuals are saying, you know, go, images are popping up on the screen until there's like five different images together, and he talks about highlighting the humanity of this mission. It's not just about Armstrong. It's not just about Buzz Aldrin. It's not even, about you know, Collins, who everybody kind of forgets about. But it's about the 400,000 people who made this deal happen. And we get some really fantastic shots of all of these individuals working behind the scenes. There's even this kind of black and white almost surveillance footage before the launch where they're fixing this leaky valve. And we get to see these guys just kind of coming in in hard hats and they're they're just screwing it and making it tighter and hey, we're good to go now. And I really appreciate kind of all those emotions that are associated with the you know, the lunar Apollo project. And then what I also love about this movie is Miller presents space travel as this philosophical, almost spiritual journey, as this earthy journey that takes a whole lot of people. But he also taps into what makes space travel so interesting for so many of us, especially when we were children. And that's just, space travel is cool. It just is. The idea of launching individuals into space is just cool. And one of my favorite sections of the film is shortly after the Saturn V lifts off, and we get the shot, and it's just, it's blasting. And that's when he just kind of cranks this this almost rockin' music as we are watching one of you know the biggest rocket ever assembled launch three people into outer space and it'll eventually take them to the moon and it's just it just feels. Cool. It just feels exhilarating, and so his ability to kind of balance all of those emotions and all of those feelings in this documentary, I I think it's it it really it takes something special, and I think people can look at this and say, oh, it's just he's cutting together footage, but it but it's it's really more than that.
1: He does do a good job of bringing to the fore some of the smaller elements that tend to get lost in the conversation. You mentioned that Michael Collins, who was in the command module orbiting the moon while uh, Armstrong and Aldrin were on the lunar surface, um, people tend to forget about Collins because he wasn't one of the guys actually on the lunar surface. And what this documentary does is actually kind of let us uh, be with him for a little bit as well. So there's a, a moment in this film where it kind of takes us back up into the command module, and it uh, talks about how Collins is going to be by himself in that module. He's going to go around to the dark side of the moon, so he's going to be cut off from radio contact, and for the next, I don't know, like 45 minutes or or however long it takes— for the next little bit he's going to be more alone than any other human being has ever been <laughs> in the history of humankind and that's something that you know watching the the documentary I was like I oh I never really thought of it that way before because you all you always think about Armstrong and Aldrin and you kind of think oh well you know Collins was up there and he was just he was just kind of fine you know he was just making sure that everything was ticking along and you don't really think about the fact that while Armstrong and Aldrin's experience was singular, Collins's experience was just as singular, and that's something I think that this documentary does really well is kind of bring home to you again the the singularity of all of these experiences, the the fact that this had never been done before, and while this was going on, experiences were being had by a human being that no human being ever felt before t- to that extent and that very, very few, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of humanity will likely ever feel. And that's pretty... That's that's something that I appreciated in the watching of the film.
0: Yeah, there definitely is this great balance, too, between the individual experience and the kind of collective experience. And watching this a second time, I I noticed... Uh, individuals in the crowd that I didn't notice before. So, uh, right before the the Saturn V is about to take off, uh, we get a lot of different shots of all the people that have come to Cocoa Beach uh, to see this you know, the, you know, this historic event. And we have people that are just camping out on the beach, and then we have this almost like VIP section where the news media is and where all these special individuals, these popular, famous individuals are. And these shots uh, cut from, you know, these close-ups, these individual faces to these wider shots. And I m- I missed some of these the first time. But in that VIP section, you see Johnny Carson walk by. You see Jack Benny. You see LBJ kind of in the background. We don't get any close-up shots of him. And then real quickly, you get Nixon. And I'll talk a little bit later about Nixon's presence in this movie. But what I love, too, about Miller's work here is that the way that he's kind of editing that together, we get the sense that these individuals, famous, you know, LBJ was this huge driving force behind the Apollo programs, and yet they're all kind of spectators in history, and that this event means more than just one person one famous individual this is something bigger and this is something grander and to see some of the shots and I know a lot of that footage was actually a lot of the footage that was discovered for the first time and just these, this camera crew kind of coming out uh, and, and shooting these, these individuals and then oh man I love the scene. I watched it. Uh, I watched it like twice the other day, just because it's it's fantastic. But it's after uh, the the moon sequences and the astronauts are coming home, and they're playing they're playing the song Mother Country by John Stewart, and the tape recorder's kind of uh, flipping upside down, back and forth in zero gravity, and it it works perfect because the lines say it's you know just a lot of people doing the best they could. And it's a fun sequence. It really is a lot of fun. And Miller puts that together well. And we get all these shots of these controllers. And some of them, we saw their names on the bottom of the screen. You know, some of them are, are more famous than others. You got Gene Kranz, you got some of these others. But a lot of these are just these, these young kids. They're in their 20s. And and they're doing this momentous work. And so you get the individual, but also the collective of, hey, this is this is bigger than all of us this is this is something momentous in history
1: something that i thought about as the credits were rolling was you know the the film ends with the its own title i guess its own logo it's got apollo and then it slowly starts putting the names of the participants on screen and then zooms it all out and and the number 11 appears on screen and it's completely you know composed of all of the names of the people who worked on the project and I mean that's you know that's not necessarily, that's something that's been done before kind of that gimmick of spelling something or creating a picture out of the constituent parts of all the people who are involved but doing it here made me see the film less almost as less of a documentary and more of a of a memorial like a like a war memorial or historical memorial in that it helps us remember i guess and i think that that's maybe why you know even though i don't know that i was as engaged by it as cinema as i maybe wanted to be i do appreciate that it, it exists because it's almost like a, maybe the first cinematic memorial we had that kind of almost explicitly positions itself with that with no editorial commentary, no no hindsight, just the footage itself and letting it all speak for
0: itself. And that's a worthwhile goal too, I think. No, and I think it is. and And I do appreciate Miller kind of editing things together to provoke... Certain thoughts, but it's never heavy-handed. Uh, there's a shot at the beginning, and it's this this huge group of people. Most of them are these young white males, and you know these the white short-sleeve shirts and a tie. And we get the shot of of one woman in the room and she's the only one there and then we get a close up of her and it's not long but it's quick and i think what miller does there is he reminds us that in this era these individuals were pushed out but they were still a part of it that it was it was more difficult for them to be involved because of the time and because of the misogyny and you know all of this but these individuals contributed in their own way and we cannot forget these faces. And then simultaneously, I I talked about uh, Nixon. Nixon's presence here is a presence. And particularly because we know what happened to Nixon. There's also some quick talk about Vietnam. There's also something really quick about Chappaquiddick. These uh, controllers mention that on, uh, on the air. And It's just enough to remind us about what's going on in this country. And if you think about, you know, the summer of 69, we're going to talk about the summer of 69 when we talk about Tarantino's movie next week. But just what was going on in the country in 69 and what was coming, right? The escalation of the Vietnam War, we got Nixon and Watergate and all of that. And yet, in the midst of that, there's something that brought everyone together. And that provoked this hope. And I think maybe that's why I appreciate this movie so much is it brings out these feelings without doing it in a heavy-handed way. And it's inspiring. And it's patriotic without being nationalistic or overly patriotic. It's saying, hey, look what, what we did as a country. Now, the country's struggling. There's all this junk going on. But yet there were a lot of people that came together and they did something great, and I, I think that's a really great balance uh, here, uh, you know, between hey, looking at America and understanding its wrongs, but also understanding the, you know, the potential of of this country.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a really great way to look at kind of what this film can mean is just portraying not just a portrait of a particular time in history, but also kind of embodying almost this this ethos of what we maybe wish America always was. And it isn't always that, but it sometimes was. And that's something nice to see in a film like this. Listeners, that is our review of the new documentary, or maybe not brand new since we did, of course, uh, only get to talk about it a little bit after its theatrical release, but it is on-demand streaming on Amazon and iTunes. So listeners, if you have the chance to stream that on demand and want to let us know your thoughts on it, we would love to hear from you. You can always email and tweet us as per usual. But Wade, now that we have finished chronicling mankind's achievements with technology in this show... It's time to recommend something from the past, uh, something from the world of television or film that you would like listeners to check out in their spare time. What do you have for us this week?
0: Well, I do have to say, first, uh, Kevin, during this entire review, I think my heart rate was probably higher than Buzz Aldrin's during launch at 88, uh, when they (laughs) they highlighted that during the movie. You know, so there's a lot of things that I could recommend. Uh, I have been getting into the Apollo program lately and 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 just reading a number of books, uh, but I wanted to choose something that kind of goes along with this documentary and that is a, a short film, uh, so I'm going to recommend a short film uh, from Todd Douglas Miller. It's from 2016 and it's actually the project uh, I think that was kind of this precursor to this documentary and it's called The Last Step, so it's 21 minutes long and it's actually a uh, a short synopsis of Apollo 17, so the last man lunar mission, and it essentially takes the same approach. So there's no uh, narration, there's no interviews. It's all used uh, with primary footage, and some of that is, of course, uh, newly discovered footage. What I really appreciate about this movie is, is while it's similar to Apollo 11, uh, we also get some uh, variances in this. Uh We get a beautiful night launch. So Apollo 17 it was the only Apollo night launch. So we get to see the Saturn V take off at night, which is really great. And then also noticing the differences between these individuals across the missions. So Apollo 11, it's really funny. We get a lot of great sequences. We get a lot of humor. But when these individuals, when Armstrong and when Buzz Aldrin land on the moon, it's a pretty serious ordeal. And you also have to think about the personality of Armstrong, too. When you have the astronauts Cernan and and Schmidt land on the moon, uh, they are a lot more excited uh, and a little less controlled in their emotion. There are sequences where they uh, crack jokes, where they sing songs while they're on the moon. Their EVA, they actually were on the moon longer than any other astronauts, any other Apollo mission. So we get uh, we get to see them driving around in the the moon rover. So a lot of different uh, sequences that we're not going to find in Apollo 11. Now, space travel still is, is dangerous. Uh, this film still is tense. I don't think anything kind of recreates, though, that tense moon landing in Apollo 11, but it is tense, but it also shows that that it really is a lot of fun. So this is a great companion documentary, Uh, 2016, it's called The Last Steps, you can view this for free on YouTube, or you can go to greatbigstory.com, so either YouTube or greatbigstory.com, watch it, 20 minutes long, it makes me wish that Miller would do a film like that for all of the... Uh, lunar Apollo missions. I think that I think it'd be great this great piece of history that we would have. So that's my recommendation this week.
1: So that sounds like something that I should definitely make time for. Maybe something to to watch with my dad, who's a little bit of a space program buff himself. Well, while you took Apollo Eleven as your jumping off point for your recommendation this week, I chose The Lion King as my jumping off point, mainly uh, to recommend a film that uses a live-action animal aesthetic a lot more effectively, in my opinion, than the remake does. And that would be 1988's film The Bear, directed by Jean-Jacques Annaud. This is a, an American-French film set in uh, Canada that basically the main character is a bear— now, it's not an all-animal cast. Some human characters do figure into the plot. But for the majority of the film, we're watching this bear cub named Yuke kind of grow up from a cub into an adult bear, come into contact with another bear played by Bart the Bear, who is, uh, I'm told, a very famous bear actor in the history of movies. <laughs> but... What I appreciate about this film is that it is um, it, it somehow manages to make Yuke into a bona fide character, even though it's not using any CGI wizardry. There's no incredible journey homeward bound kind of stuff where his mouth moves and he talks and he has you know a bird sidekick or something. He's a he's a literal bear, and the stuff that he does in the film are literal bear things, and yet you get a sense for a consciousness or sentience uh, behind you that's not just as as a brute you get a sense for him as a creation shall we say so that when we do see these human characters bump up against the the characters so called from the wild and interact you feel a lot more affinity for the bear than you do for the humans. And I think that's down to Anod's uh, very keen way of bringing us into alignment with Yuke's perspective through the way he uh, directs sequences, the way he stages the interactions between the humans and the bear, and where he frames the humans as not necessarily central to this world. It's a really interesting headspace that he brings the, the audience into he's aided by just an absolutely incredible score uh written by philippe sard so just a, a a really uh great film especially if you're into nature documentaries and if you want to get a sense for what the lion king might have been like if instead of going with cgi talking animals disney had maybe gone even more naturalistic direction uh the bear might give you kind of a faint idea of the possibilities that would have attended that choice
0: yeah uh, that sounds that sounds really fantastic i haven't even heard of of that film until now i am a little disappointed though that you didn't recommend this after our midsummer review i think it would have fit really well there but it sounds i mean it sounds great (laughs) you
1: you know i think that midsummer's bear stands on its own
0: (laughs) Well, listeners, that is our episode today. Make sure to shoot us your thoughts at C on Twitter at C Believe Pod. You can also email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com. On episode 211. Our plan is to review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. I'm pretty excited about that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and com. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Beard, and my co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seen and Bully thing